You're listening to a Why Now podcast. This is Golden Nuggets podcast on whynow.co.uk. I'm your host, Al, and I'm a PE teacher of 15 years. This podcast is about interviewing key influencers in education and giving them a platform to deliver their story. I want to explore why and how they do what they do to better inform parents and pupils on their education journey. Okay, and welcome back on the Golden Nuggets podcast. Today I have Daniel Fujiwara. How are you, Dan? You okay? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, surviving. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing quite well actually in this. It's okay, yeah. Yeah, eyes aren't going cross-eyed yet with looking at screens all day and Zoom meetings and stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um, and today we're going to be looking at well-being and how it impacts productivity, um, mainly to try and explore to see whether we can use this with some students. So um, do you want to just introduce yourself, Dan, and tell us a bit about who you are and, and what you're doing at the moment? Sure. So um, I'm, I'm a, uh, I've got an academic background. Um, I I. St- I started off as, as an economist, um, worked in the government for around 10 years um, and got heavily involved in the um, in the kind of the well-being initiative within government uh, that started to gain a lot of legs under under com- under uh, kind of Cameron's leadership um, and, and ended up doing a lot of work in well-being around measuring well-being of civil servants. Uh, we did a lot in the Ministry of Defence with service personnel, etc., um, and that led me into doing some, you know, postgraduate studies around this. Uh, did did a PhD in in uh, well-being economics at the London School of Economics, um, and in two thousand twelve, off the back of that, um, set up a uh, a company called Symmetrica. So we're a research consultancy. We uh, we specialise in social value measurement. Um, and well-being analysis. Um, so that's broadly in both areas, looking at the impact that different programs and policies have um, on the quality of life of and, and well-being of people. Um, and last year we sold, or the company is part acquired by um, Jacobs Engineering Group, which is a, a US engineering company. Um, so we're working as a subsidiary with them. Um, and you know we do a, a lot of work around well-being measurement. Um, I think we've we've kind of worked with two or three hundred organisations to date around that, looking at uh, well-being of their customers, well-being of their employees, well-being of stakeholders, local communities, and how they can impact that and how they can actually improve that going forward. Okay, cool. Well, let's let's actually get into the definition of of well-being and what do you actually measure? Yeah. So um, there there are numerous ways of thinking about well-being and because it's become a bit of a hot topic in the last few years um you know there's 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 lots of new stuff coming out but fundamentally i think we can bring it all back to kind of three ways of thinking about this um and this is very much kind of rooted in uh even if you go back to kind of the ancient greeks what aristotle and epicurus and people like that were doing we haven't actually changed a huge amount since then but what we've kind of got i think is um, an evaluation of your life. So this is, you know, having someone sit back and think about their lives um, and, and how they think they're doing. And that could be in relation to their neighbours. It could be in relation to their friends. It could be in relation to their, their goals and things like that in life. Um, and a typical question there that we use um, is known as the life satisfaction question. So that's how satisfied are you with your life on a scale of, you know, it could be zero to 10 or something like that. Um and that'll, that'll pick up that broad assessment. There's also a much more kind of momentary level of well-being known as hedonic well-being. 
um, and that is interested in looking at how you're feeling day to day. Um, and there's loads of questions here, but the, the key ones that the UK government's using at the moment um, are around anxiety and happiness. So how happy and how anxious are people feeling? Uh, and you can feel both of those things together. They're not mutually exclusive. Um, so you could be happy and anxious at the same time if you're watching a sports team, for example, in a, you know, in a penalty shootout or something like that. Um, and then the third area is this idea of purpose and kind of virtue, which comes from Aristotle. So that is kind of how much purpose you have in your life, how virtuous are the things that you do in your life. Um, and that's known as eudaimonic well-being. And that's that's a further dimension. Again, it picks up a slightly different thing to how you're feeling right now and, and your overall assessment of your life. Um, but we've got to a stage now where we measure those outcomes um, through self-reported survey questions. So we're typically asking people, how happy you feel right now or how happy you felt yesterday or how much purpose do you think you have, you know, in your life, how purposeful are things that you do in your life? Okay. So evaluation of life, experience and purpose. Um, if you were to ask me some general questions, just to contextualize that slightly, what would you ask me then? Uh, in order to understand how, how, how well you're doing, do you mean? Yeah, so let's go through those three areas. Like what questions, evaluation of life. Just ask me some questions which you'd ask me. So we can ask you, the evaluation of life is typically that life satisfaction question. So I'd ask you, you know, nowadays or overall, how satisfied are you with your life on a scale of zero to 10? And you'd normally be able to respond back in about 30 seconds maximum to me. Um, other types of questions might be, think about the, your best possible life and uh, rate your life currently against that now on a scale of one to 10. Um, the these kind of experience measures, uh, we would ask you, for example, how much joy are you feeling right now? Or how happy do you feel right now? Again, on a scale of zero to 10, how anxious do you feel right now? How fatigued? How um, tired do you feel right now? And again, those would be on a, you know, on a similar type of scale. Um, and then the uh, this kind of purpose question would typically look like something like, um, you know, think about the things that you do in your daily life. How much purpose do you have or how, how purposeful are, the, are those activities? Okay, so um, you said about satisfaction. What sort of things am I looking at for satisfaction? Because it's obviously quite a broad area, satisfaction. So are you talking about my relationships with my friends and family? Are we talking about the my job? Are we talking about my relationships with my children, um, my commute? Like what, what encompasses satisfaction within the model that you work with? Within? So we don't actually break it down for individuals. That The, the way that um, we approach this, and this has become the standardised approach within economics. So economists have really taken on this field of, of well-being recently as well. And this is the, the type of approach that, that we're using within that discipline, which is we ask you the general overall question. So you just respond to that life satisfaction question. And you might give me an eight out of 10 if I ask you that right now. And then we also collect alongside that a whole heap of other survey questions. So we may ask, you know, a minimum of 30 other questions, but it could be 400 or so other questions in these, you know, large surveys. Um, and we would ask you, are you married? Uh, what what is what salary are you on? Which industry do you work in? Um, how many children do you have? Do you have a pet? Do you have a, a garden at home? How is your health? So all of these different factors in life. And and through enough responses from those questions, we will start to see there's a pattern in the data. So people who are typically reporting lower levels of life satisfaction, which could be a three or a four out of 10, have got poor health, they've got low income, they might be unemployed, 
Um, they have, you know, they've been discriminated at work that, you know, there could be multiple reasons why that is. And so we build from that data, we build a series of statistical models that allow us to look at the drivers of well-being. So we're not asking you how you feel about your leisure time or how you feel about your garden or your salary. We know that how that will impact on your well-being from the data that we collect in addition to the life satisfaction question. And that that we do at, you know, we can do at company level, we do that at national level, but it gives us uh, a, an insight into what drives well-being and, and what well-being is is kind of comprised of. Um, but there's also, you talked about um, like quality of housing maybe and, and environment. So um, I know pr- on a previous podcast, you mentioned about like doing sports or keeping fit and healthy, which you've just obviously mentioned with a healthy lifestyle, art, culture, podcasts, listening to that. Do you have kids or not? Um, intimacy. So I'm just trying to get sort of a broad picture here of generalizing. You've got three questions, which you could probably answer off the top of your head, like you said, and maybe your gut tells you the right answer. And maybe that's what the statistics show, but I'm trying to get into the nitty gritty of what that actually looks like for an average person. Yeah. So um, I've got a couple of responses to that. The first is your response to those questions are quite easy for you and they're quick. So if I asked you those four wellbeing questions, you would get through them in about 60 to 90 seconds typically. And it's not a huge, you, and if I ask you afterwards, how difficult were they to, to respond to, you would tell me they're quite easy. Um, and on the face of it, they seem quite simplistic. But if you look at the validity of those scores uh, in a lot more depth, you will see that they are highly correlated to all of the things that we think are important in life. So people that are um, rating low levels of life satisfaction have much poorer levels of health, they have lower levels of immunity, um, they are likely to die quicker than people with high levels of life satisfaction, they're less likely to stay in their job, um, less likely to get married, for example. So lots of things they're correlated with, which gives us um, a, a good kind of sense of this kind of evidence that they are meaningful, right? Those, these short questions. Um, and then, so if we can, if we base this on that, that we, these, these questions are telling us something meaningful about people's lives, even if they're, they're, they're a snapshot. Um, what drives that really depends on what measure we're taking. And it's quite interesting when we get into kind of the experience versus the evaluation measure, depending on whether I ask you that, which question I ask you there, it's going to tell me something different about what is important for your life. So if we just look at experience, right? So that's how happy you're feeling at the moment or anxiety. Work is not particularly good for you. Being at work, being at the office, whatever your job is, um, most of the time on average is not great. You'd People would be rather out there shopping, going to the pub, seeing friends and, and that kind of thing. But at the evaluation of your life, work is probably just about one or two, you know, in the top two or three of, of most important things. So when we sit back and think about our lives, that rating is driven very highly by things like whether you've got a good job or not. But in the moment, it's, it's a little bit contradictory, you know, in our experiences in the moment, um, it's actually telling us that there are other things that we prefer, you know, to do than, than be at work. Um, so you get these interesting things across the different data sets. Uh, but, you know, typically speaking, if we look at experiences, um, the, the, the big things that drive experiences are things like engagement in the arts, sports, 
um, cooking, um, intimacy, being with your partner, playing with your kids, playing with a pet. All of these things are important. Listening to music. Uh, we've, we've, we've even found evidence that listening to podcasts, you know, has a, has a, has a, has a significant, statistically significant positive effect. So, you know, and learning and, and ebooks and that kind of thing. Um, and things like being sick in bed, queuing, arguing, all of those things are really bad for your experiences. Um, and then when we broaden that out to think about the evaluation of people's lives, that's when things like having a good job, um, you know, being married, um, having social or being in a good, you know, relationship as well, um, and good friendships, that kind of thing, the environment, so levels of pollution, noise, all of that stuff, we can start to sh- see show up um, when we look at the, the kind of the, the wider thing. And income actually doesn't really impact your mood. This is quite another nice, interesting finding. Not a huge amount of correlation between income, your level of income and salary and happiness in the moment, but quite a strong correlation with your evaluation of your life. So it really depends on which which measure you're looking at. Hmm. See, interesting on that, I've read a couple of studies recently that said that about income and people's general overall happiness, and that it sort of rised up to about, in the UK this was, and I think this was about two or three years ago. So let's, it's there or thereabouts. It rises up to about 55,000. It then... It's very, very slowly increases, but not a lot. And then it drops off the cliff downwards after about 150,000. Now, look, if you're on 150,000 quid a year, that's a lot of money. But it, it, it doesn't make them happier. As a general rule, this is, yeah, a study which... Um, and then it looked at a comparison in Sweden as well. Uh, and obviously it depends where you are in the UK, right? Because, you know, 55 grand up in the northeast is a lot more down in than the southeast um but it was quite interesting to um see that it pretty much nearly plateaued so from your studies though i mean is there any accuracy in that or is it just more generics or is there anything statistical there so income's an interesting one because um it brings into focus uh the, the the difficulties that we get in kind of the media and that kind of thing where these kind of stories get reported because the journalist or whoever is reporting that doesn't understand the the well-being metric that's being used. So all of what you've said is true when we look at happiness in the moment or happiness during a day. So, well, you know, salary is important up to about a point. It's the same in the US. I think it's about $90,000 or something in the US, pretty similar, and it will start to drop off. But when we look at an evaluation of someone's life, so that's life satisfaction rather than how happy you feel right now, it, it does start to tailor off, but it's always there. It's always positive. So when you're on 100,000 and if you move to 300,000, right, that jump compared to zero to 100,000 um, is is not as big. You know, 100,000 pounds when you're richer is, isn't such a big impact, but it still has an impact. We never see a negative relationship when we look at an evaluation of someone's life. So if, if it's just kind of how happy you feel in the moment and that is determined by whether you're watching a film right now or whether you're having a good meal or, you know, you're out with your partner and that kind of thing, income has a little bit of an impact, but it, it starts to tailor off after a while. But when we think about our lives overall from an evaluation, actually income, income is always significantly and, and uh, positively associated with that, even, you know, regardless of how rich we, we, we see these people um, mm. in the data set. So there's an interesting difference there. And, and the media likes, I think, likes to tell that story that um, income has no impact on your well-being. It's quite a nice counterintuitive type of story. Um, and it's true, but it's just dependent on which measure of well-being you're using. And it's it's only when you measure these hedonic experience measures of well-being where you find that. Um, 
hedonic, can you just expand on that in case anyone doesn't understand? So hedonic is just the technical term that's used for this kind of momentary well-being. It's when we ask your about how you're feeling right now or how you feel over the past day that that's known as hedonic well-being and it's it's opposite to that evaluative more longer term uh, picture okay cool and let's um i'm going to get a bit more into the nitty-gritty of this but um let's talk a bit about you and why you started all this off and let's let's go rewind all the way back maybe to school like how was it you know at school and your experience and stuff so school was um, quite interesting from what I remember of it in the early days. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm mixed race. So my father's Japanese, mother's English. And um, I, I went to school and was brought up in both countries. Um, and in both countries, uh, those schools were in very rural areas. So I was in a rural area um, in Japan. And then I was in Cornwall um, when I came to the UK when I was about eight. Um, and effectively, I was, I was really the only kind of mixed race person that looked like that in all my classes. So, um, you know, th- I think there, there's quite a lot of kind of, I felt at that time, um, you know, fair amounts of kind of racial discrimination, that kind of thing, and just teasing, which, which did get to me after a while. It was, it was, it wasn't physical in any way, but, um, that, that kind of then I think drove in me, um, a desire to, to want to do something good with my life, if that makes sense to kind of, you know, that, that, feeling of discrimination or being teased was something that definitely impacted on my well-being um and I felt at that time I remember clearly when I was about nine I was thinking you know I'd really like to do something about this and I think that's how I landed in the you know the well-being research I didn't have a a clear idea obviously at that point when I was nine that I wanted to do that but um I think you know through a natural sequence of things um, I've always been interested in how we can improve people's lives how we can improve their mental health and that kind of thing um and I think that's how I've, I've kind of landed in it in that way. And I've, I was lucky enough to get a position when I first started in the, um, in the government here as an economist, um, you know, to, to having the remit to look at the wellbeing research and how the government can use that. Um, and I was able to, to really take a leading role in that. And I, you know, very fortunately that my line manager allowed me that kind of autonomy to look at it. So, um, that allowed me to make quite a lot of progress and, um, you know, build up really my, my research and interest in this area. Well, let's go into the research now because um, we're going to try and use this as a model to try and bring into education, but we really need to know what the evidence you found actually has worked in some of the companies. So let's let's just explore that for a sec. So um, we, we've done a lot of work with companies. Um, predominantly, we've been looking at their customer base and the stakeholders that they impact on. So you know, one example, we worked with Thames Water and Anglian Water, two of the big water utilities, um, on how, you know, if if they need to go and do some roadworks or if there's an internal flooding incident because of some poor infrastructure, how that impacts on their customers' well-being. Um, and, you know, we've done a lot of work in that area, but increasingly, we've also now started to refocus that to look internally within these companies at their employees and, and, and what impacts on their well-being. Um, and our our research but also the research that we know of um you know uh, from from other people in the community um i think suggests to me at the moment that that well-being is probably the biggest driver it's the single biggest driver of performance in these companies um you know when we look at things like sleep fatigue exercising that kind of stuff which are typically seen to be really important factors in people's productivity um all of that actually drops out of our equations when we include well-being and what that tells us is that 
For example, sleep is important for productivity and performance, uh, but it's only important because it goes through well-being. So that's refocused our attention to think about, actually, why don't we just drop this kind of, you know, uh, data around sleep and stuff like that and really focus on what the main thing is here which is which is well-being because that will capture sleep that will capture whether you've had an argument with your partner um you know whether there are any other issues at home it will capture the impact of the environment and weather on people's um on people's well-being um and i think there's there's two interesting areas that we're looking at um at the moment and one is that uh you know given that well-being is a single biggest driver of performance and um, there's evidence to suggest now pretty strongly that about 50 percent of someone's well-being is can be moved around it could be shifted around so if about half of our well-being is genetically disposed right there's nothing really we can do about that the remaining 50 percent is interesting 10 percent of that 50 of the 50 is external factors so it's stuff like salary income uh, sorry wh- where you live who you work with all of that kind of external stuff the remaining 40% is mindset and intentional activities. So what I mean by that is kind of whether on a Thursday evening you decide to watch a comedy film, uh, you decide to just go on YouTube, or you decide to go and do a bit more of your foreign language training, for example, you know, how, how you kind of intentionally use your time. Um, and given that we can shift about 50% of that well-being, what we're seeing with the companies that we work with is that we can, you know, we can move around a decent chunk of that well-being and we can see improvements in performance off the back of that in these companies um, from anything kind of between five to up to 40% changes in, in performance, whether that's rated by the individual, whether that's rated by their line manager, whether it's rated on an objective measure, like how many emails they're getting through and firing off in a day um, and that kind of thing. So I think we're at quite an interesting threshold now where we can use this new science in well-being to really understand how employees are feeling within companies and also um, you know to drive performance and I think the next logical step around that is is within schools um, where we can think about performance at the teacher level um, so you know can we improve well-being of teachers uh, so that that has a performance impact which knocks on onto the kids and actually can we think about the well-being and the performance of children as well through the type of work that we do. Let's discuss that a little bit. So I'm a teacher. What sort of things would you want to ask me which could make that marginal gains? You talk about 40%, you reckon, that you can control. And of that 40%, how much do you say productivity would gain in terms of... Yeah, I think if, if, so there's, yeah, of that 40%, if we can get, you know, if we can move that much of your well-being, I, I would imagine that we could be looking at kind of 40, 50% changes in, in productivity. So that's a hell of, that's, a, that's huge. Huge. Yeah. There are studies out there that have shown, you know, 33% improvements. We had one study where we got about 38% improvement in one particular group. Um, it, it kind of depends a little bit on where they are on their, initial levels of well-being as well so if they're mm. if they're already doing pretty well and they've got a great employer and their levels of well-being are high there's not a huge amount of marginal gain that you can make it's more about sustaining that um mm. but yeah if you're working with areas where there are problems that they could you know they could be you know really large double digit improvements in performance okay so let's um so say for example i'm a teacher right you come in and we're gonna fire me some questions what are the first things you'd, you maybe ask me as a teacher you, by the way, you've got you've you've got two kids, right? Yeah, yeah, three kids, and both and both very good kids, I'm guessing, and very very academic as well, high performers. Yes, yeah, 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 um, and that's the thing. Like they're a very good school. They're both you you're doing obviously something right as a dad. <laughs> you don't get into those schools without them being very bright anyway. But what as a teacher, how would you support me? 
So we do. Um, so we have we have a system called Performance Care Science. This is a product that we've developed, which is around measuring well-being and performance for uh, for people really in any industry. We, we're using it at the moment with Harlequins, for example, in the sports sector. We're we're about to launch a, a large trial within with the NHS, um, and we've used it with various companies before. And what that does is it, it it measures well-being in the types of ways that we were discussing at the start of this podcast. So those types of questions, we have a, a, a large number of questions. There are kind of maybe 15 other well-being questions that we get into. We also look at resilience and things like that. Um, and with that data, as a, as a, you know, if we're coming to talk to you as a teacher, there are two things that we do with that data. So first of all, we're collecting that data on you. So we know what you're like in terms of your well-being profile and that kind of thing. The first thing we do is look at that 10%, which is about the external factors. So is there stuff within the school setting that's detrimental to your well-being? That could be work hours. It could be um, the, a teacher that you don't like working with. It could be the, you know, it could be the, the school. There's an issue with the school parking lot. There could be lots of different things. It could be the school meals. Um, so we'd look at those types of things and we would ask you some questions about how you feel about um, certain factors in your school and we'd also collect data in the school itself whether you know there's sufficient parking spaces whether there's air conditioning in the school all of that kind of stuff so we can look at the external factors and we can shift around around you know 10% of your well-being based on that we then have a series of interventions and programs that we run with staff and that could be with teachers as well um, that are targeted at in continuously improving well-being as well and there are two facets that we have one is on the mindset side, which is a, a bit more typical of what schools, I think, are doing at the moment. And that's around mindfulness and and pe- getting people to cognitively reassess how they think about things. So that could be meditation. It could be yoga with meditation. There's, there's various things. It could be, you know, CBT. There's lots of different things that we could be using there. And um, the other area where we do, uh, where most of our work lies is not around mindset, but around activities. So um, we have around 100 different interventions here that we can deploy with staff. And I can give you one example, which is a gratitude survey. So we'll we'll track your well-being for a couple of weeks. We will then ask you on a Sunday night to go away and write down five things um, that you're grateful for over the past week. And that could literally be anything. It could be nice food. It could be, I, I like the weather. I'm grateful for the fact that I'm still healthy. I'm grateful for the fact that I've still got a job. Whatever those things are, it doesn't really matter. And we don't ask you to tell anyone. We ask you to write those things down, keep them in your pocket and look, have a look at that maybe every day. Um, and just that very simple exercise done once a week on a Sunday, the evidence shows that that has, you know, impacts six months down the line in terms of people's well-being. So we can provide that kind of intervention um, and that will then lead on to knock-on impacts in performance. So we can see the impacts of these types of interventions improve well-being they also show up in cognitive test scores, executive function scores. They show up in reaction time tests that we've done um, and they will show up in productivity and, and that kind of thing going on. So we have that series, that kind of support network around an individual, whether that's a teacher or a general kind of office staff member or an, or an athlete um, that will allow them to reach their, their potential, as it were. So you've got positive reinforcement with gratitude um, and how does that affect your brain in terms of neurologically? How does how does the endorphins that you get released from that, how does that affect your processing speed or your ability to be efficient? There, the, the evidence is emerging a little bit more. So um, 
some of the trials and RCTs in this area are showing that people become um, more expansive in their outset when they have higher levels of well-being. And let, let's say it's the gratitude. The gratitude journal is one way of increasing well-being. There's lots of other measures. We can do a visualization task where we ask you to visualize something in your life, for example, or get you to listen to certain types of music, whatever the intervention is that improves your well-being. We know in an immediate sense, for example, using eye tracker technology, that people's peripheral vision is suddenly more enhanced when they have higher levels of well-being. And that could be because of the gratitude journal, for example. Some of the studies that have done that have been used to do this have just actually asked a bunch of people in half of the trial to look at a, a, a comedy clip on YouTube and the other half just look at a neutral clip like a, a you know, a, a cityscape or something like that. And their peripheral vision is much more expanded in the, in the former group. So there's an opening of space. We also see there's more interaction and openness to ideas immediately after people have undergone these types of interventions. So there's an openness to think about diversity in a different way. People are open to other races, other cultures much more if they're happier. Um, and they're open to other ideas. They're also much more likely to help people. So immediately after these types of interventions, we see people in a controlled setting. You know, if someone drops a, a bunch of pencils in a room, room, they'll go and help that. So physiologically, there is some kind of expansion. We can see that in the visual kind of periphery stuff, but we can see it in how people are open to other types of ideas. So there's some kind of physiological change that happens there. Um, and also there's just this kind of, you know, this feeling of... Um, uh, euphoria, kind of joy, happiness, that is a big driver. We know that's correlated with things like immunity to certain types of diseases, viruses, all of that kind of stuff. So there's definitely something there that's happening physiologically. Um, and there's also stuff that we haven't been able to explain yet, but you know, there is a direct link between well-being and, and outcomes like reaction times and, and, and cognitive tests and that kind of thing. But it, it's going to be because it's, it's due to, to being, you know, people opening up and performing better when they're in a better mood effectively. Mm. It's funny because um, everyone's always looking for what mental skills to improve on because we don't know, like, how much of the brain do we even know? How much How much of the brain do we even know about? I don't even know. You, you, I don't know particularly, yeah, but it's a small amount. 10%, 15% max? Yeah. Like And so, like, if we can untap a bit more of that, then it, there's exponential growth, really, isn't there? Exactly, um, yeah, yeah. What I'm so so as a student, I'm looking at probably a variety of things, but I'm looking at value added scores at GCSE and A level, because you know not everyone's going to be an A star student, granted, but you can manoeuvre that as a teacher and your style of delivery and different learning styles and how you research and structure practice design and stuff like that. But um, I'm also looking at the whole picture as well. So I'm looking about their ability on the sports field. I'm talking about if they're in, you know, doing music, performances, drama, art, on the stage, acting, everything. Do you think this is the edge that people will get? I mean, if you're talking about 40% gains, that's that's huge. Like why 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 isn't this do, why why isn't this happening in schools already now? So that um I, I'm not sure about. It it's an emerging science. So this this area within positive psychology, which Positive psychology is about 10 years old. It's a fairly new field of the science. Um, and that within psychology has shifted psychology away from thinking about floundering all the time, which is mental health conditions, to thinking about states of flourishing. So that's been one massive transition in psychology. And that psychologists aren't particularly interested in performance uh, productivity. That's more on, on the economist side. So it's, it's through this kind of transition of the well-being and 
positive psychology literature into economics, which is becoming more multidisciplinary at the moment, um, where we've really started to pick up on this idea around productivity. Um, and I, I think it's just literally because it's, it's, it's that new at the moment that, you know, we, we've started work with a lot of sports teams. We went and spoke to about 30 of, 30 of the major clubs. We went to Barcelona, who looked like they're doing the most in this area, but they are well off the pace in terms of what is happening in academia, for example, around, around well-being and, and collecting a very narrow set. So if we're talking, you know, these kind of clubs that are turning over billions in revenue, uh, where, kind of, you know, those marginal gains are, are key and, and them not even kind of implementing it. Uh, I think it's just, it's just telling us that, you know, it's, it's, it's too new really to, to have had that traction up to this point. But, you know, firms are starting to understand that there's, there's more of a desire, increasing desire now within companies to, to measure wellbeing per se, because they think it's an important thing to measure in terms of, you know, a duty of care aspect. Um, but they're all also now starting to realize that there is a performance element as well. So when we went to speak to a few hospitals and a few other organizations recently, they do have some metrics and systems in place to measure well-being and mental health. They hadn't realized that that actually then leads on to productivity gains. And that's the new edge that we're providing to them. So it's an additional layer. Because we all know it, right? We all feel it, don't we? Like we feel it inside, you know, when you feel great, you're on, you know, you're top of the world, aren't you? But it's hard to then try and justify something and rationalize it with an economic input into it to go, look, we need to invest in this because if we do this, we're going to get 40% more or, you know, it might not be 40%. If you've already got a high well-being, you'll at least sustain it or slightly improve it. I think that's that's the key is is also from an economic standpoint trying to justify it because obviously with covid happening businesses sort of really looking quite seriously now at profit margins and where they can make some cuts but maybe actually look at investing in people to make them better to grow especially the fact that we're going going to go through this brexit stage as well and we're going to be out there with the rest of the world going this is us these are the future children of the United Kingdom. What separates the children coming through from the rest of the world? Like we've got first class universities, but have we got first class secondary and primary education? You know, because we get a lot of foreign students. They come over. They haven't been educated in the UK and they'll go to the top red bricks. They'll go to Oxford and Cambridge but have they come through our system? And not only have they come through our system, but have they come through our system from the state sector as well as the independent sector? Because ultimately, like with the old grammar school system, it didn't matter what class you were in. If you were the brightest person, you got into that system and then you got into that system, you had an opportunity to study at tertiary education, even if you had nothing. We're not seeing grammar schools so much anymore. It's sort of been squeezed out and it's, they've gone into the state sector or they've been privatized but what i'm trying to think is is if intelligence isn't linked with just going to an independent school or having money how can we provide a platform to provide this all the way through from from primary secondary in-state education as well how do we justify to the government ministers because you've worked there so how how are you going to do it so yeah, that I mean that's really interesting. I think um, 
in terms of the justification, we can show that. And we've shown that for previous clients. You know, if we're talking about a productivity gain of 10, 20%, that will have some kind of cashable benefit down the line somewhere. Um, it's maybe a little bit easier to do that at a company level. It may mean that you don't have to hire that additional person because you've got 10 people working at 10% higher, for example, um, and you've got that cash saving there. When we get into schools, you know, what is the cashable saving? Um, it's, it's more kind of the long-term trajectory of that child and what he contributes to society. It, I mean, if you're thinking about a private school setting, it might be that you've got better grades, you know, and better performance in the league tables, et cetera. Um, and, and you can kind of draw on more people coming into your school. But let me just point on that, though, just one second. And I think this is important for context, is that I think that the league tables um, are measuring the wrong thing. Why aren't we measuring value-added scores? Yeah, so that could be, I think, given the league tables as they are now, um, this system or this this kind of way of thinking about marginal gains would have an impact on your league table if we can get the, the children to perform better. Um, but there's also, we've, we've started to look at with a few universities in the UK, um, a series of well-being indicators that should go alongside other types of research indicators in the university rankings. And that's something where we should get to probably with with uh, the schooling, you know, with the general school sector as well in the UK, which is talking about, doesn't I don't think they need to be league tables, but they could be a well-being rating, they could be a resilience rating, there could be a rating of the type of well-being programs that a school delivers. So it opens up a huge amount of things, but ultimately that should lead on to happier, more productive teachers and children, I think, at work. Um, and just in terms of the... the you know, we can put all of that into quantitative terms and value that and demonstrate that kind of thing for for an for an organisation. Um, it's also, you know, really interesting. It, it, you know, if you, I, I've tried it myself, obviously, at an individual level, if I ask you to go and run one of these interventions, and I ask you to do a reaction test before then, so, you know, something on a computer where the colour changes, and you're reacting to that, and it's telling you in how many milliseconds you've done that, you go away and do the thing that I've told you to do for a couple of minutes, which might be the gratitude thing. It could be a savoring experience exercise and come back and do that again. No matter how hard you try on pre and post, you'll get a better score afterwards. And that I've, you know, we've done that with, I do a lot of the um, interventions that we trial, I actually trial them with my kids initially. So I get them to go and sit in a room for two <laughs> minutes, go and do your gratitude exercise, go and do something else. And they're amazed when they come back that they've knocked 40, you know, 40% off their reaction time, or they've managed in a sequence of words in a memory test, they've got 50 words instead of 12, right? Just because, you know, pre-post. So you can you can see it pretty quickly. They're instant results. Um, and so we do a lot of kind of initial trials and things with, with uh, and pilots with organizations who are a bit skeptical maybe about the value of it, but, you know, in order to kind of demonstrate that. But it's so quick, the improvement that we see. Um, and it's something that you can kind of feel and experience yourself. I mean, would, there, would there be an argument for, you know, like people wear Fitbits and they get reduced health insurance? Yeah. Right. Is is there something in this saying like if you do your course or your interventions, you get a, you know reduced gym membership, for example, or uh, reduced health insurance, or there's some like incentives along the way, and then as you progress that through as part of the company, if you do various things, then you get various discounts. So it's sort of it's like an an accumulative thing. It's adding points to to your mental well being, your bank of well being. Um, yeah, and those those um credits, let's call them. Uh, the, the nice thing would be if those were were things that buy you things that we know generate more well-being, if that makes sense. So you go and do it, yeah. go and do an intervention, 
you don't go and spend it all on Fortnite. You're, we, we give you access to something like an experience for a day that we know improves your well-being and you get this virtuous cycle. Um, it's, it's, I think it's really just a case of who would, who would pay for that? You know, whose costs are we saving in the long, in the grand scheme of things that allow us to, to make that saving somewhere so that we can provide that as a, as an incentive, as it were. Well, the thing is, though, there are some schools at the moment, and I'm not going to name schools, but they are incentivizing kids to just behave. And if they behave it by the end of the year, if they've not had so many disciplinary stuff, yeah, they get to go away to Alton Towers. Scrap that. Let's go. If you do these positive things, positive reward, yeah, you then get to go away to Alton Towers. So let's just flip it around. I mean, that's common sense, surely. That's a much better message for me as well, which is the kids have not got a, a mindset of avoidance. Um, they, they have a proactive mindset, which is, okay, I'll go and do this thing now for, for, for two or three minutes on a Sunday evening. Um, and as long as I can prove that I've done it, that's where I get my reward. Because naturally, after that, the school will see a, a change in behaviour. I think it's a much better mm. incentivized structure for, for children to, to, to use. Um, look, uh, it's... Harlequins, you, you managed to get a contract. They were the first club to sign with yourself, but professional sports club in the world. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty forward thinking, isn't it? By uh, by Gustard. What's um? What was the? Uh, how did you manage to influence him? So we we have um a good long standing commercial relationship with Harlequins. Um, in previous areas, we do a lot of work with their foundation around measuring the impact of of their foundational kind of charitable work. Um, and we have a joint venture in that area. So we, I know the club very well. I've met the, I know the owners, uh, you know, and, and, um, you know, all staff across all aspects of the club. And in our previous work, we had been doing a lot of measurement in the kind of the Twickenham area for them in terms of what impact that their community work has on, on the wellbeing of people in that area. And it was quite a natural progression where, you know, we just started to talk about our work within with employees and whether that's something that would be of interest to Harlequins. Um, and, you know, and to be fair, they were on it straight away. They're, very, you know, extremely forward thinking. You know, we've, we've gone to a few premiership, Premier League football clubs with what we do and they shut it down straight away because the man, they, t- they tell us the managers are not interested in any data. He's, he's kind of old school. Um, but Harlequins have been great. The, the the sports performance team there are very forward thinking. Um, I think the COVID period was um, a bit of a motivator. So, you know, how are we ensuring the mental health, resilience and well-being of their players during this period? How do we ensure that they come out and perform well after it? Because, you know, there's still a good half of the season there. Um, and, and and I think Paul Gustard and the CEO there, the owners were we're all over it and, you know, and really supportive of it from the start. They, they already do a lot of stuff around mindfulness and things like that. And they just saw it as a nice compliment, additional um, service around that. And uh, let's just uh, forward wind to the future, right? And we're, we're going to talk about uh, kids and why mental well-being is, is going to be important for them. What's the biggest thing for kids now in terms of their mental well-being and how has it changed? Um, well, I think schools, uh, I remember when I was at school, uh, kind of, you know, 25, 30 years ago, uh, there was just no mention of mindfulness and resilience and that kind of thing. But, you know, my kids now um, got, uh, you know, three kids, 11 year old and, and eight year old are the, are the two, you know, older kids. They're, they're both getting mindfulness and resilience training at school and they're doing meditation and stuff like that. So, I think there's a much bigger focus on it within schools at the moment. Um, and there are some 
forward thinking schools that are out there thinking about the measurement issue or thinking about the program. So um, for me, I think the next step is to get parents involved within that and the parents asking, you know, what are you doing in, in terms of well-being for my child at this school? If you're not doing anything, why are you not doing that? Are you measuring it? Um, so I, I think there's a there'll be a natural progression towards doing this. And, um, you know, if you reflect back on what major multinational companies have been doing over the past few years, um, if that's the kind of the, the, the lead on it, then and schools are following that, then we will, I think, quite quickly get to a place where well-being is a lot more core to understanding not just you know that it's a good thing to do and to understand but actually it can really affect a child's performance and absenteeism and all of that kind of stuff um and the science i think is sophisticated enough around it to to to, to kind of produce the data that's meaningful there so i'm hoping that you know that's where we get to in the next kind of four to five years i i would imagine because mm. obviously purpose you, you sort of bring in ethics into that don't you and values and stuff like that and a lot of academies schools independent state whatever they've all got some values they're all driving towards this individual you know and, and whatever their statement is um do you think they do enough with that so um the what the the issue around well-being is really it's value laden um to to decide to measure well-being to decide to take a particular question or form of well-being um, and, and track that type of data are all subjective moral questions. There's no science that can determine why you should do that and what measure in particular you should take. Um, my experience working with large companies is that there's not enough thinking about that. They you, they will jump on the well-being bandwagon um, and it's kind of, you know, just collect the data that someone else is collecting or whatever's being done out there at the moment. And I think there's a more intellectual, intelligent debate to begin with, which is actually, why are you doing this from the outset? Is it because you care about children or your employees? Or is it because you care about the performance through the well-being? Or is it a bit of both? Um, is it something that you just want to do in terms of your profile, etc.? And and those questions, they're, they're probing, but they allow us to really get a better sense of why a, a school would want to measure well-being. And it would actually tell us what forms of well-being to measure. Because if we're only interested in performance, ultimately... There are a number. There are three or four well-being questions that are much more highly correlated with performance than another one is. So the life satisfaction question, for example, is not that highly correlated with performance. Uh, there are other better measures of well-being that correlate with performance. But um, yeah, so I think in terms of determining what it is that you want to measure, it would be good. It'd be you know we'd be in a better place if we can have that kind of more broader ethical debate and we've started to do that with a few companies that we work with and it's interesting to engage their senior management team other stakeholders etc in terms of the purpose of the company what they're trying to do etc um, and I think as you say schools have a lot of that every brochure that you look through or website that you look through has all of their values um, and just how that all intertwines together and where those values have come from I think is an interesting conversation to have. Um, so we're going to sort of wrap this up now. Some some golden nuggets um, for some pa- to help out some parents or people who are just generally interested in in the area. What would they be? The the main one would be if you're interested in the kind of stuff that we've been speaking about on this podcast. Um, th- there's a lot of interesting and easy to access um, books and literature out there at the moment in this area of kind of positive psychology. Um, that, you know, they, sometimes they come across a little bit of, as a self-help guide that that's, that's not really where I think we should be going. It's more, you know, it's more of the books that are coming from, 
uh, psychologists with the kind of the science and the evidence behind them. Um, and they are really helpful, actually. They help to refocus how you should be um, interpreting certain actions and events. Um, I think they will help you think about um, a child's life um, and, and, and which direction you might want to help them go down. Uh, should you let them choose that of their own accord? Is there some support that you should provide them? Um, and, and lots of interesting stuff about the types of scientific research and evidence that we see coming out of that. And, you know, there's, there's lots of, um, interesting cases where people have completely changed their lives after looking at that evidence and that kind of thing. You know, they work shorter hours or they're spending more time with their families and stuff like that. What was the best book you read? So a, a, a really good one for me, um, is a book called Positivity by Barbara Fredrickson. Um, she's, she's one of the top psychologists in this area. Um, and she gives you quite a nice, um, list of things that you can go away and do. It's, you know, it's quite targeted. It's an easy read, but she backs it up with a lot of evidence. So I think, you know, that, that was a nice one. And then there's lots of cross references in that book to other, to other sources, which are useful to read. Um, I, I think the other one is from a parent's perspective, um, you know, really trying to understand a little bit more about what schools are doing in the wellbeing space. Um, you know, if they're not doing anything, why is that? What, you know, how do we push them as parents to do something more about that? How do we get well-being and productivity and performance on the agenda? Um, you know, like as with health or anything else like that, you know, do we actually need schools to start to teach this kind of things? But I think there's a movement within parents where we can ask these questions now, um, where we're thinking about our child's well-being a little bit more and also maybe asking places like schools where they spend a, a lot of their time to you know what they're doing on that side as well so i'd encourage parents to look at the well-being programs the well-being policies at their schools and and whether there's more information and, and more stuff that their school could be doing no i love that and i love the uh i've got a book that my boy writes in my little journal and he sort of writes his thoughts down at the end of the day and what like a perfect day looked like at the start and then what it actually looked like and then what he may change um yeah yeah it doesn't have to be a lot. It could be like three lines, but it's quite, it is quite impactful that I must admit. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And um, I really, really do hope that we can push this through. Um, it, and I really do hope that you're successful in education, mate. Cause I think, I think a lot of schools are doing some great stuff, but I think there's a lot more we can do. And I think if we can measure it and get it enrolled out, then that would be great. So uh, thanks again. Thank you for that.